Hello and welcome to the D&D Podcast. In today's episode, R&D's James Wyatt will be interviewing Ed Greenwood about his latest novel, The Herald, as well as all things Forgotten Realms. So without further ado, let's go straight to the interview. So uh, first question I want to ask you is, uh, Ed, what, what's this book I keep hearing about? I don't know. Which one are you hearing about? Is it The Herald? Yes, that's it. Herald something. <laughs> The her- uh, Herald. Herald Johnson. No, no. <laughs> okay. Herald Angel. The Herald. <laughs> the Herald, right. yes. In the beginning, it was decided to sunder. And the sundering would be six books, and this is the sixth and this last is of the them. Sixth and last. So who is the Herald? The Herald? Well, oh, I don't want to spoil the book. No, no. <laughs> no, okay. Hint there is it. a prophecy alluded to in the book. And at various times, various people are hinted at that they could be the herald that, that is alluded to in the prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear by the end that Elminster thinks he's the herald, or <laughs> rather, he thinks, as usual, well, if somebody's going to fix this mess, it's going to have to be me. <laughs> so... Uh, Elminster's in that mode, so it it would seem to say that he is the herald. But I had fun while writing the book in um, in the same way that you could, for instance, and I'm in no way comparing this directly to the Lord of the Rings. But if you look at the Lord of the Rings, there are all sorts of different heroes in the Lord of the Rings. There's Gandalf as one sort of hero, Aragorn as another sort of hero. You know, the the guy with the sword. You know, the everyman sort of hero who is Sam Gamgee. You know. And, and Frodo, the tragic hero, the ring bearer. Okay, there are different heroes. Well, in the same way, when I was writing the Herald, I thought, I'm going to have some fun with this. There are going to be a bunch of different people who are heralding things. And then I had to, because I was cognizant of the fact that, that Susan was going to be looking at my prose, <laughs> that I shouldn't do the nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing of saying, boy, it's a good thing nothing was heralded here, and and hark, what yonder herald? You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it would be a mistaken style to sort of rub the uh, the reader's nose in it by saying, hey, herald over here, I'm herald and my wife is too. You know, <laughs> uh, we we wouldn't want to go there. So I, I sort of hint at it rather than you know, nudge nudge wink wink here's the elbow in your ribs right. from the from the writer i right. i you know i didn't want to go that far but yeah all the way through it you're going yeah that's the way you could be herald and i'm not just doing it for the to do to play spot the herald <laughs> no I, I i'm doing it so that that Where's you can herald? keep thinking okay the herald it's it's not the it's not that you put on a tabard and and you know blow a trumpet or anything it's that you're pointing the way towards something important that is imminent that is about to happen and there are all sorts of imminent, about-to-happen things that happen in the Herald. Uh, there, have I have I sufficiently tied everybody in knots? That was an awesome answer to a very silly question. <laughs> Fantastic. So, I'm here all week. No. <laughs> I want to uh, take a step back in case anybody listening to this doesn't even know who this guy on the cover is. So you mentioned Elminster. Mm. Who is he and what makes him an interesting character to read about? Elminster, um, that, that's a really good question because Elminster is, 
at first glance, everybody's stereotypical old wizard. You know, cantankerous guy, long beard, says crazy things, um, plays the I am older than dirt and I know more than you card. Um, so, you know, you go, oh, yeah. And look, he has robes, boots, staff. Yeah, wizard. But he is not Merlin. He is not Gandalf. He is not Belgarath. He is not pick your wizard. You know, Elminster is increasingly at the stage in which we see him in the last few novels I've written, the Sage of Shadowdale trilogy, which everyone should rush out and read, and, and the Herald, which if you, for some weird reason, you couldn't read the Sundering books in order, which would, you know, be a tragedy, but you could just read it as the next book that happens to Elminster after the Sage books. Um, by this point in time, Elminster is old beyond old and tired beyond tired. He is a mortal who has outlived the kingdom he was born into. He has outlived all sorts of kingdoms. He has outlived hundreds of people whom he loved. And I don't just mean as consorts. I mean friends, family. He's outlived so many people. He's just sick and tired of it all. But he's also one of those guys who he's been, he's kept going for centuries because he has a purpose. He's serving Mistra. He's serving the goddess of magic. Not Personally, although it did start out that way back in Making of a Mage, it was very personal. But he's, he's serving the goddess of magic, the office of the goddess of magic for a reason. He agrees with her philosophy of spreading magic as a great equalizer. It's, it's the every man, you know, that we are all created equal and maybe should be treated equal. We aren't really equal in our capabilities, but magic is perhaps the great equalizer that will stop the um the excesses of extreme power that that uh, that we see over and over again whether we're talking about dragons or beholders or tyrannical humans once they've got enough power they tend to misuse it it is the nature of power that it corrupts so in the same way that the harpers who elminster co-founded work against rulers becoming too powerful and spreading out the power, so too do the Chosen of Mistra. They spread magic everywhere. So the little shoeshine boy, whom the great armored warrior is going to drop kick into the nearest <laughs> gorge, looks up and says, oh, no, you don't. Pow! With magic. And once that happens several dozen times, the great armored bullying warriors of the world go, maybe I shouldn't kick this little shoeshine boy, because you never know. <laughs> and, okay, so uh, by this t the time in, in this book... Elminster is really, really tired of doing this, but because he's dedicated so much of his life to this cause, he can't let go unless he can find a worthy successor. Now, he thought, during the Sage of Shadowdale, he'd found one in the person of Amaroon Whitewave, an exotic dancer who was his many, 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 many times great-granddaughter descendant. And, of course, the moment that becomes common knowledge. It's like he's painted a target on her and placed a traveling spotlight on her. Mm -hmm. and, and so he feels that it's his duty to safeguard her until she can stand on her own two feet. In other words, keep her alive so that he can successfully hand over power. Now, at the same time, he has a lot of enemies that he's accumulated. There are a lot of scores to settle. And this book is where you finally see him faced in confrontations toe-to-toe -to -toe with some people that he's been dancing around for centuries 
to avoid having a direct confrontation. But now push has come to shove. It's showdown at high noon time, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you are there. Well, um, I, in, in fact, if you had to compare it to a movie reference, it would be more like the road to perdition that very, very rainy street confrontation rather than your archetypal Western with the guy with a badge on one side and the guy with a black hat on the other facing each other down the high street. Anyway, yeah, as you can see, I can, I can take a tiny question and oh boy, we're here for a long time. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. <I> Shut up. <laughs> so, Ed, you mentioned um, re the relationship between this book and the other Sunring books and your previous books kind of in passing. So, for the benefit of our listeners, mm -hmm. I want to I clarify, will the Herald make sense to a reader who hasn't read the other Sundering novels? Uh, okay. He, he, here's how I would answer that. If you haven't read my previous Sage trilogy, there will be two characters, and I just named one of them, and the other one is, is her consort, our class Del Castle, who they will appear in the book, and you will say, who are these people? <laughs> but... The way they're they're introduced in the book, it will it will become clear from context, and you can follow on. You just won't have some of the weight of meaning behind some of their back and forth repartee and so on. Mm -hmm. If you haven't read, say, Paul Kemp's The Godborn or uh, much much earlier Troy Denning's Return of the Archwizards books or anything in between, as in mainly the other Kale books by by Paul Kemp, and you you have not yet encountered the people of the shades, the the Thultanthans, uh, the Tansel family, the room. Uh, a lot of that will be who are these guys? But again, it will become clear from the context of the book. But it will rob the book of some of the impact of things that are happening. And in fact, we get to see things in a lot of the Sundering books that build towards this moment. But it is important for a reader who isn't familiar with the Sundering to to think of it. Not as six books that are direct sequels to each other telling the same story in an ongoing arc. So much as it is, if you were reading books, a whole bunch of different novels set during World War II, but about different characters, different people, in different operating theaters, different things are happening to them. They're all part of the same conflict. And there are a few Easter eggs, crossover characters, for instance. The character of Stead appears in two different novels by two different authors in the middle of this, but it is not going to be crucial that you read them all. I would think you'd have a better reading experience if you read them all in order. So rush out and buy every single <laughs> one. Seriously, you should. I mean, I mean, I, as, as, as Mr. Realms, uh, the, the old joke that Jeff Grubb and I used to have, that he was Mr. Forgotten and I was Mr. Realms. <laughs> but but uh, as Mr. Realms, um, I would say, you should never miss a, uh, miss a chance to, you know, stride into the realms and have some fun. And every novel is another chance to stride into the realms and have some fun. So, no, you shouldn't miss any of them. But uh, you could approach this one by itself and just say, okay, I didn't get a chance to read the others. Wow. And I hope by the time you finish it, you'll say, okay, now I have to go back and read yes. all the others. because. <laughs> but but the, it, the ideal would be to read them in order. I would say the because Richard Lee Byers and Troy Denning both wrote books with new sets of characters 
They could both be starting points. If you're interested in the kingdom of Cormier and have followed it through umpteen books written by all sorts of different people, you should not miss Aaron Evans, The Adversary, or Troy Dennings, The Sentinel, or for that matter, <laughs> only in passing, The Herald, because they all impact on Cormier. And the one book that could be read by somebody who didn't want to read The Sundering at all, but was following Driss de Urden is, of course, The Companions at the beginning. You could read that as the next thing that happened to Drist and then move on to the next Drist book. But you'd be robbing yourself of so much if you did that. Um, I, I always find it really cool to, like, if, if a series is, is planned in an arc like that, let's read it mm-hmm. in an arc like that. And will you gain anything by reading it that way? And I would decidedly say yes. Absolutely. Having, yeah, pulled out the books and read them all. I would read them in order and read every single one of them because you will get the feeling, the weight, the importance, the fact that it isn't just some um, shaped squiggles of ink on a page that represent one author going, hey, this is really important. We're saving the world over here. (laughs) And you're going, yeah, again, every doorstop fantasy novel I have in my house, we save the world. The fate of the world always hangs in the balance. But if you read all six of these books... By the time you get to book six, which is <gasps> the Herald, it really does. It really does feel like the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Now, with that said, I do have to tell you, if you are setting out into book six, the Herald, expecting me to answer every question you may have about, did this god survive? Is this god now wearing pink? Um, what about what happened in, in, to this earth mode? And, and what about this particular town? No. You're getting things from the point of view of the, the, what's going on to the main characters in the Herald. And very much as if there's, a, in real life, a fog of war. So you can't know everything and can't see everything. That holds true in the Herald. I would love to have sitting down and written the book. That, that crossed every T and dotted every I all the way through. But first of all, I would have had to wait another year. So they were all finished and I could digest them all. And the book would have been at least three times as long. And although I would de- it would give me great delight to write a book three times as long, <laughs> um, I'm not sure that at your end, <laughs> when you, know, you were um, delivering them with... Uh, delivery carts so that each reader could move them from room to room of their house <laughs> for their next reading session. Um, <laughs> th- th- that would have been so well received. <laughs> yes. So um, we've talked a lot about Elminster, but he's not the only well-established famous character who appears in the book. Um, one of the very first characters who shows up in the book, in fact, is Mert. Mm-hmm. So wasn't he the very first character to ever appear in the Forgotten Realms? He was. He was my original realm's uh, viewpoint character, um, as in the reader looked over his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And Mert is someone that I've never really had the chance to um, go to town with. Uh, There are some good reasons for that, but one of them is that Mert was um, not something that would have fit in with the old TSR Code of Ethics. (laughs) Um, The best way to think of Mert is Shakespeare's Falstaff. Okay, mm-hmm. rogue. 
Ben's twists everything to his own advantage, misuses the king's purse, da da da, and drinks heavily all the time, and has a belly and wheezes and is out of shape. Add to that a little bit of, of Guy Kilpatrick's Glen Cannon from his old Glen Cannon stories, uh, which were about, um, in the case of Glen Cannon, he's a drunken Scottish engineer on a tramp steamer <laughs> who's always down in the engine room. Drinking, Duggan's do of Kirkentillic. <laughs> and then a little bit of Nicholas Van Ryn, who's Paul Anderson's traitor, and, and traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, right. not traitor, traitor, um, throughout the galaxy. And a little bit of all of these three guys. And in other words, he is a man of action who was once Mert the Merciless, uh, a mercenary war captain, but he's like, way too old and fat and wheezing to do that anymore. He can no longer outrun people or outfight them, so he has to outwit them. So think of a man who, who has an ample paunch, he has the front of whatever he's wearing, is usually stained with food and wine spills, he's wheezing, he's, he wears floppy-topped old sea boots all the time, and he leaves town a bare step ahead of creditors and the authorities. And that's actually how I created the realms. He went from city to city down the Sword Coast, and I went with him. <laughs> And yeah, so that's Mert. And and Mert, by the way, had a good friend who retired quite early when they made their pile, Dungeoneering, because the, the friend, Durnan, who later ran, ran the Yawning Portal, was the thinking man's Conan. In other words, think of Conan the Barbarian, except lop off the barbarian part and make him learned and cultured, which meant he was a, an almost unbeatable combination because he could outthink you as well as, you know, Crom Smite. <laughs> so hey, Conan's no dullard. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, Conan is is the noble savage, you know, with great cunning and great animal senses. And Durnan was more like, I know how the swindle works. Mm -hmm. I could see it, which meant he was. Which is why they they got so successful so early. And Durnan was also far more intelligent than most adventurers. He looked at the pile of money they'd made and said, "I'm getting out. I'm retiring." <laughs> I'm going to buy me an inn, and I'm going to fleece other people for the rest of my life. <laughs> Hello, the Yawning Portal. <laughs> but, so, uh, Mert yeah. obviously has been around for a long time. How old yes. is he now? Um, in, in game terms, yeah. inside the world? Well, the problem is, he went into stasis. That's really what I wanted you to talk about. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> so, although he didn't age for about a century, um, as far as he's concerned... He got trapped and put in, well, hmm, how shall I, okay, into a blue flame item, which we see him come out of um, in the Sage of Shadowdale trilogy. He emerges in Cormier about a century after he went in as a Lord of Waterdeep, halfway across the continent of Faroon. So he's now in the declining side of middle age. <laughs> so it, although he would not admit how old he is, You'd be thinking when you saw him, he's either a debauched late 60s or a um, ruggedly ill-preserved early 70s. <laughs> Somewhere in there, you know, and he would act like he was 40-ish um, and naughty. You know, oh, I'm sure we could manage another <laughs> skin of wine. After all, we've only had six, man. The night is young, you know, that sort of thing. And, and yet you could see that that would be putting on a show. You know, it's actively putting on his persona, living up to it, rather than, yes, I really want to down six more skins of wine. He would roll his eyes when he said that, and he would be sweating. But he'd say, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> oh, 
oh, look, there's a wedge. You know, <laughs> it's as if he then has to live up to that and do something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Mert, Mert's now. But the, the, th- the other thing, of course, is Mert doesn't know what to do with himself. And he's facing the same thing that Elminster's faced so many times in the past. His lady love is almost certainly dead of old age. Mm-hmm. He's lost everything. He's got to start a new life. And we saw him very briefly during this age of Shadowdale trilogy in a few scenes say, Oh, let's go wild wine woman, you know, and, and then, then of course, you know, he, he, uh, because I was, you know, writing a novel for you guys, he, he took himself and his lady companion up off a, up a, up a ladder. We didn't see anything else, <laughs> uh, but we see him at the beginning of the Herald sitting, drinking in a corner of a very expensive, exclusive club in downtown Sazale in Cormier that only nobles who have more money than brains because of how expensive everything is in the club. It's like going to the ritziest restaurant you can think of in real life and gladly paying their prices. That's what he's doing. He's sitting in a corner, drinking, alone, listening to the nobles as they happen to be um, gossiping about the events that are occurring all over the world, i.e. the Sundering. And then, of course, he has a visitor. Dun, dun. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, yeah. And there is there was a tiny bit of me that said, "Oh, I want to shoehorn everybody into this book," because for one thing, it's updating a lot of important Rom's characters to the end of the Sundering. You know, as we're getting to the end of the 1400s, where are the, all of these people? What stage are they at? But of course, that's where you know. It, it, it is a good thing to have an editor to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, <laughs> you realize if you put like 40 major characters in this, they, they're going to each get a chapter and then the book is over. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to sort of pull back. So Mert appears in this book, but this is by no means a book about Mert. But the nice thing about Mert is you can have your commentators and you can have your commentators. And some of the commentators we get in this book are the the poor innocent who gets trapped in the middle of something, and you get the, oh my goodness, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> then there's the commentator who has a vested interest, like all of those nobles. You know, they turn everything into their ongoing political discussion. You know, and I suppose, once again, the ruling Obarskers will do nothing as they've done for centuries. Huh. You know, in other words, they're putting everything in the context of their own, you know, beefs about the world. But Mert, as the fish out of water, who is old enough to have seen all this before, so he's no innocent, but he didn't grow up in Cormier, and he has been away, trapped in this magic item for a century, and he's now seeing Cormier firsthand, rather than the Cormier he um, got to see long range through envoys of his day, and he's sitting there as an observer who can say, oh, this isn't going to go well. Because he's seen it all before. He says, oh, yes, let's watch the nobles dance and prance. Now, who will be the first to put their foot in it? You know, <laughs> so he's doing that sort of thing. So he, he affords us the world-weary commentator, which is something I really can't do with, say, Elminster, because Elminster's a world-weary commentator who's caught up in the middle of it and is trying to accomplish right. something. Mert's sitting, sitting back on the sidelines because he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what the he doesn't know what he wants ahead for himself. He doesn't he, he doesn't 
think I know what's best for the world, which of course is the affliction that affects many of the more active characters in the Herald, some of them because they really think they do know, that would be Elminster and perhaps Storm, and perhaps some other chosen that we may or may not see in the book. <laughs> and then there are other people who equate what they want with what's best for the world. That would be um, Telemont Tansel would be a perfect example of that. Um, what he wants personally is the best future for the realms because he doesn't give two hoots about anybody else. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's what I want. So, so and, and therefore, Mert and Mert's foil, Manchun, who is the person who arrives and Mert suggests he sit down at the same table and share the wine, um, is by way of being a foil to Mert, because Manchun does have his own intentions and designs. He is this, this Manchun of the many Manchuns. Um, well, <laughs> to borrow Richard Lee Byer's phrase, in my father's house, there are many Manchuns. <laughs> <laughs> which never fails to slay me. It gets me every time because, yeah. And this particular Manchun is a vampire um, and was the ruler of Westgate in the past. And not during the Herald. This is, he's, he's behind, that, all that's behind him. And before that, of course, he's a clone of the Manchun who rose to rule Central Keep. So he's been around the block and he loves power. And he has ambitions in this new future realms, and if you read the Sage of Saturdale trilogy, which I'm sure all of you did, or should have done, um, uh, we got to see him actually trying to repudiate a deal with Mistra, which takes more brass ones than many of us will have. <laughs> and, or sanity would suggest that anybody should try to have. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> awesome. So, um, this is the last book in the Sunring, mm -hmm. which uh, my my first notes about the Sunring go back to November two thousand eleven. I think that's when we had all the authors out here to plan out this craziness, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a day of meetings and talked about all sorts of stuff, and then went home. And I guess you and Troy and Bob sat in the hotel bar for a while after that that meeting. And came mm -hmm. back the next morning with a plan. Yes. And looking at my notes, in my notes about that plan, I can see the bones of the sundering pretty clearly. So my question is, um, when you left here in November 2011, mm -hmm. did, you, did you see a course that is pretty much the course that has been followed? I, I um, guess the better way I want to ask that is, has it followed the course you expected? Well, okay, the, the honest answer is I didn't expect anything. <laughs> um, what we did was, what what we did in the bar, well, okay, that, that makes it sound very seedy. It's, it's the lobby of the hotel, and the lobby of the hotel has a, has a, a dining area, and then an area with a fireplace and seating which they euphemistically refer to as the bar. <laughs> it's the lobby of the hotel. Now, we sat in the lobby of the hotel talking as Realms fans will do everywhere in the world, drawing on what we knew of the characters by what had been published, and also in our case, our, our, each, each of us has very um, uh, developed thoughts of the characters we've played with before. Well, 
Bob knows Drizzt, I know Elminster, that sort of thing. Um, we sat down and said, well, if this, then this. But there's no way Elminster would have stood for that. Or, no, I can't see Drizzt doing that. You know, Rome's fans do that all the time. That's how we play with the world. Whether we're doing it at the gaming table, or whether we're writing um, fiction set in the realms, or if we're just daydreaming and playing with the realms. You know, you, 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 you try and infer things from what has been said in the lore that's been published, and you play the what-if game. You know, what if, what if there's lost Obarskir hairs and they come back and claim the throne of the, um, of the kingdom of Cormir? What would that do? For that matter, you know, wasn't Alm a monarchy way back when, briefly? Da -da -da? What if some of them are still around? You know, you, you played the what-if game. Mm -hmm. And so what we did was play the what-if game. When we came back to it, we said, okay, this feels right to us. This here would probably happen. And if this, then that. Um, the, the same thing we did on the chalkboard where, well, you can't invade through there because that would provoke this from this reaction from ta-da, because they live there, you know, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Um, that sort of brainstorming going on. But what we were all seeing is probable this would happen, not this is what we've decided we have to go forth on this path. Because one of the things that was uh, we were acutely aware of was that, for instance, Richard was starting with new characters. You know, so um, we knew that uh, he wanted to do this book in this area, Sea of Fallen Stars. But beyond that, we had to be hammered out. And we figured when everybody went away and wrote their own books, all sorts of things would pop up. And because all sorts of things would pop up, you can't really predict it in the same way that you throw money at R&D in, in any company and something is going to come out of left field, out of the blue, that somebody like the, the old gentleman at Sony who made a Walkman, the very first Walkman, you know, for himself on the assembly line. <laughs> and, oh, look at that, you know. <laughs> um, that something will pop out of the blue and could change the the course of the entire sundry. Um, we knew going in with talking with everybody in-house and among all the, the freelancers that the sundering had to occupy this spot in the history of the realms. And it was, we were moving through this area of um, finishing the, the effects of the spell plague and pointing us towards what the realms would be in the future. But there's a world of difference between saying, okay, we are, we have to get from A to B, and B has to be the way the realms is going forth. There's a world of difference between recognizing that as the task at hand and saying, oh, and we've decided for you what the realms is going to be going forth. Here it is, right. which, which would have been a mistake because the realms to stay alive has got to develop, and it's got to develop not only in the hands of all the gamers out there, which it will continue to do, and that lovely mechanism built in now where, you know, the majority of people who play something in encounters and report in, and this happens, then it happens in the realms, too. That, you know, gamers are part of the unfolding history of the realms, that bit. And at the same time, knowing that, as and increasingly as the summits went forth, that there are things being planned in-house, and I think the only one that and you can jump on me here if I'm wrong. We can talk about Tyranny of Dragons now because it has been announced. Yes, it has. <laughs> but but um, Tyranny of Dragons it was neither the first story cycle 
nor will it be the last story cycle that is being worked on. And therefore, each story cycle is going to sort of, I wouldn't say drag the realms in a particular direction, as shine a spotlight in a particular direction. And because we're shining a spotlight, as all dungeon masters know, once you shine a spotlight in a certain direction, it behooves you to fill in some detail in that direction because um, gamers, their characters, their player characters, are going to pick up rocks and look underneath them, and they're going to walk around behind walls, and they're going to open doors and look through and say, oh, at whatever's on the other side. So it behooves you to put something on the other side. <laughs> so it's going to, it's going to sort of um, steer development of aspects of the realms going forth. And I, I may say, you know, on a personal level, I've been really, really pleased at what I see in the summit and what I see people in-house working on that they report on at the summit or they, they bring before us at the summit because I go, ooh, goody, goody, goody. As, as <laughs> the guy who created the realms way back when, I am excited at what I see. So, yes, good on you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so, in the course of your writing, um, did you invent any Walkmen? Um, is there something in your book that came up organically in the process of writing and surprised you and struck you with its awesomeness? Nothing that surprised me because I knew what was going to happen. Uh, but there were three things. There were, okay, there were four things. Oh, there were five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it pleased me to do the scenes inside Candlegate that we finally got to see what it was like in Candlekeep, albeit in snitches and snatches and at a time of great tension, rather than, this is what it's been like for 40 years. Oh, look, somebody turned a page. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we weren't, getting, we weren't getting that. Good. So we were seeing um, the monastery during the Name of the Rose events, rather than the monastery up until then. Right. Okay, so, so it was fun to get in there. Um, the Bailnorn in Mistranor. I was conscious of trying to pull back and not spend too much word count on them because I could have reveled in that for the entire book. I was thinking, gee, maybe I can put in 40 chapters, one for each Bailnorn. You know, <laughs> because it, it felt so cool. But on the other hand, it would have been 40 chapters of the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if you personally like Chinese food or seven-layer cake, but 40 chapters of Chinese food and 40 chapters of seven-layer cake. I think when they brought the 41st helping out, you'd be going, and uh, I think we've done yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so there, there was that. And the thing that surprised me, and it, what it surprised me is I couldn't resist it. Um, the thing that surprised me was the scene at the end in the kitchen, the farmhouse kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say anything more about that. I, I other than to say it, I had planned to do it like that, but it surprised me how much, not so, not really how much fun I had writing it, but how much I needed to write it for me by the time I got there. Uh -huh. Because the, the book was written in, in um, a, a great, the usual great pressure of having other projects to do with the realms coming and going during the same time and, and fits and starts and so on, and then having to do bits of it in a real hurry and then get to the next bit where I could slow down and enjoy, you know, the usual stuff. And by the time I got to there, I needed to write that scene. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a reward for the reader. It was a reward. For the 
And and let's see, what were the other things? Um, the fact that I had so much fun writing the various SmackDown moments. Okay. It was, I had been pulling back and pulling back and underscoring the the important thing about having great power, particularly if you're a wizard, is knowing when not to use it. You know, that little um, wizard's golden rule that I'd been underscoring so that people like Elminster didn't go around blasting and smashing everything within reach. They pulled back for a surprising amount of time and let mere, mere stupid mortals <laughs> do the thing in front of them and then said, well, here's another five mess you've gotten us all into. Because the lesson would be better learned that way, and because it's always better style not to fire off every weapon in your arsenal and advertise to everybody that you have all those weapons, it's better to let everybody work it out for themselves. Because if they work it out for themselves, then they're invested in the result, rather than it being imposed on them, so they can all get together and cordially hate the imposer, mm -hmm. i.e. usually Elminster, but also any tyrant with an army, you know, right. if it was uh, the Khan who was coming through in the crusade, anybody who conquers you or forces you into an agreement at sword's point, you can all mutually hate the guy who put the sword to your throat, even if, you know, you could set aside your differences of hating each other. But it would be better if you had to come to an agreement yourself, among yourselves, because the agreement might stick a little bit more because you have something directly invested in it as opposed to it being imposed on you. And so I've been pulling that one for a while, and it was really fun in this book. And yes, yes, warning, spoiler warning to everybody out there. This is a book where people get to blow each other away. <laughs> you will see Titanic spell battles. You will see castle towers come crashing down, and you will see monks seasoning soup. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because I want to have that in there, because... If all you do is shout and smash, it has no impact. Right. But if you do the little moments where the little girl is trying to find her lost toy, or the little guy is trying to eat, or the, the, the stereotypical running gag that's been used in umpteen movies where some guy is just trying to have a beer and there's a brawl going on, and every time he <laughs> raises the tankard to his lips, Two guys smash through it and take out a table and take his tankard away. And he goes, Dah! and he reaches for another tankard and he can never get his drink. You know, <laughs> if you get it down to those little moments, then all the big pratfall violence somehow has more meaning. Not just um, world-shaking, world-altering meaning, you know, changing borders and stuff. And not just important to the fate of the world meaning, but human nature meaning, right? Yeah. Meaning right in front of you where you go... Dang it! <laughs> Personal impact. Yes. Um, th there was a there was an editorial cartoonist up here in Canada who did one one panel newspaper editorial, and and he had a comment on uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, the president of the United States at the time during Vietnam. He drew him as John Wayne in one of those war movies. You know that. <laughs> The helmet on with the chin strap flying, the Tommy gun in hand, and he's blazing away into the night. And he's saying, why can't you all get along peaceable-like? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a comment on the attitude of the moment. But it also works as, an, as a comment on the perceived character. And it also works as a comment on good old human nature. Mm -hmm. Because people who 
open that book today of that man's editorial cartoons who never knew the cartoonist because he's long dead. They never knew LBJ because he's long dead. They never knew the Vietnam War because it happened all before their time. They, they, don't, they don't even necessarily know what war that the cartoon's about. They turn the page, they look at the cartoon, and they get it on one level. Sure. Yeah. And therefore, and that's the sort of thing you also want to do in a book. You want to not moralize about war and destruction and having to do what you got to do, sort of thing. Um, it 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 also reminds us all of what it is to be human at times. And I'm you know you can be elvish and be human. You can be a dwarf and be human. I'm talking now about the general run of human nature. Um, there are times when you have to make a principled stand or make a lousy decision in a split second and live with the results. Mm -hmm. And you do it and you go on. And no matter what happens, no matter who falls, no matter who we lose, you pick up the pieces and go on because life goes on. And that's sort of the, the lesson that, that Tolkien left us with at the end of the Lord of the Rings with Sam coming back. Well, it's like, Rosie, well, I'm back. You know, <laughs> after all this cool stuff happened, oh, yeah, I'm back. <laughs> I made it home, you know. Yep. Um, and, and there are lessons like that that I tried to put in without preaching and moralizing because I think preaching and moralizing is the wrong approach. The right approach is just lay it out in front of the reader like a buffet. Race them through a buffet having great fun on the journey and then... It's up to the reader to say, I like that bit. Well, I don't agree with that bit. You know, I like that character. I'm with him. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. You know, that's okay. Everybody can make their own decisions. I'm not trying to bring anybody to a unified worldview at the end. <laughs> um, I'm trying to leave them with the, the, the moral choices. We often learn more from characters or people in real life, too, making the wrong moral choice in front of us when we get to watch so there's no necessarily pain and consequences than we do from watching some paragon make the right choice always. Right. Um, in uh, Dylan Thomas's Child's Christmas in Wales, you know, they're all look, looking to, to find out what Mrs. Prothero will say to the fireman because Mrs. Prothero always said the right thing. You know, and although that's a delight for a, a one-shot comic character, it would be... H-E double toothpicks to live with in real life. <laughs> yes. To have someone who always said and did the right thing. I, would, I think we would all hate to have a moral compass in our midst that never missed. Right. Anyway, so that, that, anyway, that's where I was going with that. That, that this is a, a novel full of sound and fury and, if you wish, signifying nothing. But if you're a fan of the realms, it points you to the realms we have in front of us. It heralds... <laughs> The New Realms, or rather the realms going forth into the 1500s. Awesome. Ed, thank you so much. It has a pleasure. Been great fun, We should as do this always. more often. <laughs> we should indeed. We have to talk about book publishing in the realms in the future. There's all sorts of things we have. <laughs> I have, you know, scratch and sniff centerfolds, coloring books. I right, want the whole right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, I want the novel. The, the, the romance novel with the bubble pack on the cover with the single miniature in the bubble pack <laughs> and slide that plastic cover off upwards or downwards revealing the flimsy paperback underneath <laughs> awesome See? yes, See yes. Have to talk about more? <laughs> yeah. 
we will a little Tabaguchi. Talk. Okay, not Tabaguchi. Not Tabaguchi. Little pets that <laughs> a little pocket familiar. Yes, yes, and Perfect. and and little dragons. You know, so you can have a little tiny dragon that goes cool, 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 <laughs> and we'll call him Tyranny. Awesome. <laughs> and you can be tyrannized Tyr- by your little dragon. The dragon. Hello. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> Do All right. Have, to have these talks more often? Yes. You can run screaming from the room saying, I have to wash my mind out now. I look forward to it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Thank this you again, fun. Ed. We'll talk, talk later. Okay. Thanks, James. Okay. And thanks, Shelly. And thanks, Bart. Bye. Thanks, Shelly and Bart. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the D&D podcast. As always, you can hear the latest episodes from iTunes as well as straight from the D&D website at DungeonsAndDragons.com.